and welcome to the Brand New Podcast, a brand new podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm Jordan Valerie, Chief Policy Strategist at Brand New Congress. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today we're going to be discussing the right to clean water with three wonderful members of our slate. Mindy Mesmer, New Hampshire State Legislator, Environmental Scientist, and candidate for New Hampshire's 1st Congressional District. David Banak, Environmental Advocate, and Rosa Calderon, Geoscientist. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. I agree. Happy to be here. Yes, thanks for having us. Of course. Now let's dive right in to the big question here. Is clean drinking water a commodity that should be bottled, sold, profited off of, or is it a human right? I'll jump in right here. This is Mindy. I think that drinking water, when you turn on your tap in your kitchen and you pour a glass of water into that tap, uh, from the tap into your glass, you should not have to worry about whether or not it's safe to give that to your child. This is a basic human right everywhere. And this is, you know, we're, we're living in one, a first world country. We should not have to worry about the safety of our tap water when we turn it on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the one fundamental thing that we need to be able to provide for every single person in this country is the clean drinking water, clean air, clean food, and make sure we have the basics of a healthy society. Uh, water is the most important of our, of our human needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I guess I triple that response. You know, we need to protect our drinking water for the public. And we cannot afford to lose our water resources to greed uh, to this multinational corporations uh, that are, are treating water as a commodity. And, you know, when water is treated as a commodity, it cannot be protected for future generations. So we need to protect it for the people, uh, make sure that it's clean and accessible, and that it's not being bottled for profit. Absolutely agreed. Now, to understand the crisis point we're at right now, we need to take a look back in history. In 1975, bottled water wasn't the norm. On average, each American only drank one gallon of bottled water per year. That's kind of unimaginable now. In 2012, it was 30 gallons. What changed over that time and why? We um, rely on bottled water now a lot when there's a crisis in our towns, when we are not sure about the safety of our tap water, and uh, in areas where they're affected by natural disasters um, that will become more and more prevalent now as climate change and sea level rise. Um, So we need to make sure that we have tap water that's safe. We need to protect our tap water. One of the things that most Americans probably don't realize is that your bottled water is probably not as safe or as regulated as your tap water. And uh, one of the things I did here in the state of New Hampshire was try to um, impress that upon the public by requiring labels for water sold in the state of New Hampshire to um, include uh, levels of chemicals that the state of New Hampshire um, generally finds problematic across the state. And that, that bill was heavily fought by Pepsi, um, by Coke, by these big bottling companies who make a lot of profit off of bottled water, which is what Rosa was bringing up. And they fought that hard. The, the bill ultimately was killed. Um, and they spend, you know, here in New Hampshire, there's a federal lawsuit against Poland Springs for um, p- basically paying $200 a year to access groundwater, which they call then spring water and put in bottles and sell across the United States. And they basically spend only $200 a year to access that aquifer to drain it and to bottle it and send it off uh, across the United States. So there's a huge profit margin on bottled water. And it's regulated by FDA, not EPA. So it's not necessarily as safe as your tap water. 
so I like that you prefaced it with starting in 1975 because there's a couple of things that bookend that change. And one of those is in 1973 is when we invented the first plastic water bottle, which made it much cheaper for companies selling uh, bottled water. They didn't have to use glass. And then in 1977 is when Perrier really made the effort to break into the U.S. with the bottled water market. They put dumped $5 million into an advertising campaign that basically tried to call into question the safety of our tap water. And ever since then, that's been the narrative, whether it's the bottled water companies or whether it's filters, uh, companies like uh, Selling Brita, trying to make us doubt whether or not our tap water is safe, when more often than not, you know, as Mindy pointed out, our tap water is as safe, if not safer, than that in the, in the plastic water bottles. So I think that this is, again, something going back to what Rosa hit on, this is something we can really look at as corporations having changed our culture to believe that we have to go to them rather than go to our municipalities where the tap water is coming from. Right. And and I'll just go on that again. The appeal, of course, came from the idea that it had health benefits, uh, the mineral waters, the sparkling waters, Perrier, the, the push to the market where they kept saying that this is a healthier way to drink your water. Uh, when we now know that sometimes it's dirty water, it, it normalized the idea that you can just consume your water from a bottle. It also created a level of a almost a caste system where the upper classes were consuming bottled water at a higher rate than lower income families. And it became expensive. And because people were buying them and they could afford it, the prices also continued to go up. I mean, we're looking today at a gallon of water, it costs 2,000 more times than what it would cost for you to bottle it from your tap at home. So it makes sense why corporations want to manipulate, trick the public into believing that bottled water is safer when that's not the case. But why do corporations, these bottled water profiteers, oppose regulations? Why wouldn't they want to be offering their consumers legitimately clean water? I think it goes right back to profit margins. You know, why invest so much time in ensuring the quality of the water when they can just put on a label that it's spring fresh water and it's clean and they market these commercials where they appeal to people by saying that it's fresh, crisp water, you know, bottled at the source. And of course, they are always going to be looking out for their shareholders, not the public. So the public interest is the last thing on their mind. And that's why you see these uh, marketing schemes. I think we all remember that commercial where everybody is like Aquafina in a bar, clinging their glasses and, and cheering with, with water. So it created, I mean, I remember that commercial. That's how impactful impactful their uh, marketing schemes are. And that's something, you know, that I had to almost retrain myself when I moved up north to go to school in Humboldt State, where nobody uses water bottles. I mean, everybody walks around with their mason jars. Um, even at home, every single cup that we had was just jars that we had used so that we can reuse them for consumption. And, and it became a culture almost of you were the outsider if you had a bottled water. So I think we even going back to something like that with, with the new bottles that people are selling. I know my daughter forced me to buy her some of the, the new bottles that are like $40, but at least 
it's creating a culture of carrying her own water and we're getting it from home and we're using uh, faucets that are reducing the consumption of bottled waters and it has like a counter. So I think influencing the culture in a in a different way, um, almost killing them softly with their own tactics is the way to, to minimize the use of bottled water. I was just going to mention something that um, Rosa kind of touched on a little bit. But think about how much the plastics industry is making off of bottled water, too. We can't avoid thinking about that. You know, um, they make a lot of money off of bottling water and providing that plastic for us that then ends up in our oceans and on our beaches. And it's, it's really destructive to the environment. Um, but they're making a lot of money on that. And when they switched from BPA um, to the replacement chemicals, we're finding that they're actually probably more soluble in the water than the old BPA formed plastics. So it may be more of a health risk that we've not gotten ahead of yet. Just to add one more thing in there that follows in this same line, what we are doing is we're turning a basic commodity or basic right into a commodity and trying to profit from it. It's no different than trying to turn our prisons into profit centers, turn our schools into for-profit centers. You know, when we turn water into a corporate profit machine, yeah, the companies that are selling that water have an incentive to cut costs and make as much money as possible off every single bottle. And that's what we see. That's where their incentive goes. That's where their technology goes. And that's where their marketing goes. So the most widely recognized, widely discussed water crisis in America right now is in your home state, David, of Michigan. It's been over four years since Flint had clean drinking water. Could you tell us about how this happened and why this crisis persists to this day? I mean, this is a really serious issue. And I, I know we're gonna talk about it a little bit later. And th to put it in context, this is the most dramatic incident, but lead in our drinking water is a national problem. It's not just a Flint problem. Uh, the problem in Flint is in large part, just a flat out failure of democracy. Michigan has the emergency manager law, which is a relatively unique thing that the governor, for all practical purposes, the governor can appoint an emergency manager to take over and run a city to get them into more sound financial footing. And what we've seen in Michigan is that the emergency manager role has really only been applied to communities of color. And the end result is that you get a non-democratic situation where the people in that city no longer have any ability to vote on their governance. And that's what happened in Flint is they, the city was getting its water from the Detroit water supply. They, the city had a plan to switch to Lake Huron as its source because the water from Detroit was rather expensive. The emergency manager was, was appointed to run the city of Flint and to cut costs at every possible uh, expense. And one of the places where that cost was cut was rather than to continue getting water from Detroit while the city of Flint made its new water supply from the lake, they temporarily switched to the Flint River. And the Flint River is much more difficult to treat and to provide safe water. The costs were cut and after several outbreaks of bacteria and Legionnaire's disease, the city started treating that water with chlorine, but didn't also put the treatments in to protect the pipes from leaching the lead as it was broken down. And that's really where it all came to came from. It is just simply the emergency manager and the state 
cutting costs before thinking about people's health and before thinking about any long-term uh, implications and not letting the people of the city have any say in how their city is being governed. So David, I'm glad you mentioned how this is a crisis that disproportionately affects people of color. This is a phenomenon known as environmental racism. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so like you pointed out, Flint is, you know, it's, it's a minority community, and that's one of the reasons why the emergency manager position was sent there. Uh, in other communities in the state that had similar financial difficulties, we don't see the emergency managers being appointed. If you look around at the state as a whole, and it's not just in Michigan, it's everywhere. Uh, in Michigan, the most polluted zip code in the state is in a zip code that's predominantly African-American near Detroit. And this is, you know, it's happened, you saw it with the Dakota Access Pipeline, which was a move to imperil the water supply of a Native American reservation rather than the more affluent white suburbs. We see this, you know, historically all over the country where the most polluting industries and the most toxic sites are situated in those communities that have the least ability to, to fight them. So as you said, this does happen all over the country. It's happened in Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, Brady, East Chicago. They're all dealing with ongoing water contamination crises similar to what's happening in Flint. Predominantly these communities of color, these black communities. This is clearly a nationwide problem, but we haven't seen any action from Congress. Why is Congress not acting on this crisis? Well, I think the answer to that is is fairly simple, and it's the answer that we have for almost every reason why Congress doesn't act, and it comes down to money. These corporations are funding a lot of these candidates, so as I've always said, by the time that these candidates get into office, they're already cowards. They will never stand up for what's right because their number one concern is to get reelected. And um, unfortunately, this, the, what you're talking about, uh, environmental racism is actually happening. You know, the reality is that people in more affluent communities have the ability, have the time, have the resources to lobby and make sure that these plants do not, that they don't pop up in their backyard. They're able to attend city town uh, meetings, town hall meetings and, and voice their concerns. Uh, but when you are impoverished and you're working two jobs to maintain a roof over your head, that is something that is see, it's just impossible to do. So, of course, they're going to put the power, the power plant behind your house. They're going to put the refinery behind your house. They're going to be pumping the water and contaminating your neighborhood because you can't afford to say anything about it. Yeah, I mean, Rose, I've just said it perfectly well. I don't think I have that much more to add except for just to put an emphasis on the point that you know, these chemical companies and landfills are sited in areas where people don't have the facilities or the means to fight back against their siting them there or, you know, for contaminating their water supplies. So it's, it's really tragic. And I think Rosa said it exactly right. We need to um, make sure that we elect people that aren't taking special interest or lobbyist money. I see this all the time here in the state of New Hampshire lobbyists from industry and you know, municipalities fighting back against my legislation that's meant to protect public health. And we really need to elect people to Congress that have the fortitude to not take this money from these special interests and fight back for the people. And that's why I think brand new Congress is fantastic because that's a pledge that we all take to be a brand new Congress member. Um, and I think it's really, really important. It really resonates with the voters. So what could Congress be doing right now? What should they be doing? 
the first thing that Congress needs to do is, you know, as Rosa and Mindy were pointing out, is be responsive to the voters rather than be responsive to the donors. As long as we take our, our cues from those people who have the most money, we're not going to be responding to people's health. And, that's, and we need to make sure that the EPA is fully funded. Uh, we need to make sure that the Superfund uh, agency or the Superfund program is back to being where it was before they cut the funding for it under the Clinton administration. And we need to make sure that the Clean Water Rule and the Clean Water Act are fully enforced. A lot of this stuff is already in place. It's not that we need to do anything new. It's We just need to act and really truly do the things that we already are supposed to be doing. Right. That's exactly what needs to happen. Um, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be some type of legislation that does not allow any sitting congressperson, any incoming congressperson to take any lobbying money or special interest money from literally anybody. Um, I think that the way to make our vote count again is by removing lobbying interests. Uh, someone asked me, you know, there are good lobbying firms. And I said, if there were none, your voice, your vote would actually matter. So there is a lot to do in Congress. Um, of course, it's going to take an overhaul of the people who are sitting in office. And that's why we people like myself and David and Mindy are running for Congress to change that. And little by little, we will get the right people in there. We will get the people who will fight for for the people rather than corporate interests. So let's look at what's happening on a state and local level. David, Nestle recently obtained exclusive rights to extract unlimited water from Lake Michigan. Nestle is a giant multinational corporation that reported almost $7.2 billion in profits last year. They turn around to sell this extracted water to communities like Flint and East Chicago as bottled water. So they're profiting off of this crisis. Is the state of Michigan earning revenue by giving Nestle unfettered access to this natural resource? Kind of, but not really. So what what's happening is that Nestle has gotten a permit to pump water from the state, from the aquifers, from the groundwater. And the state law is a, is a high volume well, is a $200 per year permit. And there is absolutely no cost beyond that for the water that's extracted. The current permit is allowing Nestle to take, I think, something along the lines of 400 gallons per minute from the wells that it's operating. And it pays $200 per year for the permit to do that. And a lot of people say that's the state and the Congress cannot do anything about it, but we can. The There's the Great Lakes Water Compact, which is something that has not been interpreted to apply to this because it's about diverting water from the basin. The argument is that the groundwater in Michigan doesn't affect the Great Lakes Water Basin, which is absolutely absurd. And we could use the Great Lakes Water Compact to determine and to regulate how much water Nestle can take out. And there's no reason that they should be able to do this. That the law that they're that they're perverting for this cause is a law that was created to make it easier for farmers to be able to irrigate their fields. It was not something that was intended to make a multinational corporation be able to take as much water as it wanted for essentially nothing. So the same year Nestle reported almost $7.2 billion in profits, they were also caught extracting millions of gallons of water from natural reservoirs in California at the height of the drought without permits. There were widespread protests, but just a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. Forest Reserve granted them permits to 
continue extracting water at very little cost. Rosa, how is Nestle allowed to get away with this and how are California government leaders responding? Great question. Um, God, Nestle, I, you know, I have to start off with just pointing out again and reiterating the fact that Nestle uses public water supplies for private gain. So think about that. I mean, your public water that your taxpayer dollar pays for already is given special use permits for enormous corporate corporations who then turn around and sell it to you. And so you're paying for it all over again. I mean, it, it absolutely makes no sense. And if you think about it, it should piss you off. We are going through a drought right now in California. So it absolutely pisses me off. You know, the complaint that was filed, it was... It was only brought to light because over 500 people, 500 citizens signed a petition so that they could be investigated. You got to think about that. You know, they're allowed to extract this water and, and they're extracting it illegally. And I say illegally mostly because they have a special use permit, which uh, they pay $524 a year for, uh, which is ridiculous already. But it allows them to extract 8.5 million gallons. Um, but that's not happening. And so the complaint that was filed reassured the governments here in California that they were actually extracting over 62.6 million gallons per year, meaning that there was a deficit there of over almost 50 million gallons. And when Nestle was confronted with this, they actually had no defense at all. Um, and in fact, they tried to minimize the amount, but it was still, you know, about 30 million gallons over what they're allowed. And so what the question has remained here is, what is that special use permit for? Um, and, and how are they allowed to pay? I think it's like one, one thousand or one hundred thousands of, of what we pay for water. And then, of course, they're rebottling it and reselling it to us. And then they're also extracting our resources. The national park that you were talking about earlier in San Bernardino. So it's a public land, um, Strawberry Creek, but they've been doing this now for over 70 years under this permit. And so now the question does remain, uh, you know, when we are going through a drought, when you have literally pumped all the water out of this uh, reservoir, what are you doing it for? What is a special need when every single person was under water watch? I mean, People in their neighborhoods were not allowed to water their, their lawns unless it was their day. Um, we had to reduce consumption, uh, reduce use by over 25% uh, when Governor Brown said that we were at the peak of the drought. And if you were caught, people were calling you know, the state and letting them know that you were watering your lawn on Tuesday and it wasn't Wednesday, you know, so you were getting fined. So many people were paying much more for a tiny, tiny portion of consumption of water compared to what Nestle does. And they are a giant and they are committing, uh, I, th I think, human right abuses, to be honest with you. So when we talk about clean water, we shouldn't, it goes beyond just drinking water. Contamination affects the water we bathe in, the water we use to water our crops and feed livestock. What you're saying, Rosa, about these daily activities that are so necessary but have become ridiculously limited. Mindy, can you talk about your work as an environmental scientist and the cancer clusters you discovered in New Hampshire? What was the cause? Yeah, this is actually what got me into politics in a way. Um, I started, um, I identified a cancer cluster in children in the seacoast of New Hampshire back in 2014. Some children in our um, my town were literally dying from these really nasty, very severe, untreatable cancers. And our town was very upset about it. And I reported it to the state of New Hampshire uh, back in 2014. And it took them two years to come back and tell us that, in fact, it was 
a higher than expected rate and qualified as a CDC defined cancer cluster, meaning there was much more, much higher rates of cancer showing up in our children than were supposed to be. And um, particular, these rare forms of cancer. Um, that actually got me involved in um, uh, activism because when the state told us, when they called myself and another mother to the library to tell us that it was a cancer cluster, they said they were going to just sit back and watch it and see what would happen. And they didn't even tell the parents of the children who were involved in the cancer cluster that it was a cancer cluster. They found out about it in the newspaper. I decided a few days later to report it anonymously to the newspapers. And that started a whole process of people really, you know, a series of public meetings. People were very upset um, when they realized that they thought the state was trying to cover it up. And that got me involved in activism around trying to find environmental triggers. I used my background as an environmental scientist. Uh, was asked to get involved by our then governor um, to get involved in looking for environmental issues that could be causing these cancers. And we stumbled upon a huge uh, old landfill uh, Superfund site that had been largely sort of forgotten and put in the back, back burner um, in most people's minds that was unlined. It was used by the Air Force, the Navy, chemical manufacturers, so many that when you try to get an attorney in the Northeastern uh, area here in the Northeast, you can't find one that won't conflict out of it um, because so many partners, so many, so many chemical companies and uh, people have used that dump, uh, that Superfund dump, so they'd be conflicted out of it. Um, so it's a very large issue. Um, we also have an Air Force base here, which is the first base where uh, drinking water contamination was detected around 2014 and shut down a large supply well here in the seacoast area. Um, and both of these, the Air Force base and the um, Superfund site, actually the Air Force base has several Superfund sites on it, um, but these have caused basically contamination of surface water bodies and our drinking water in the entire seacoast of you know, the seacoast area here, at least five or six towns of the seacoast. So a very significant issue. And when you think about sea level rise and, um, you know, how that will be, um, you know, migrating salt water into the, the aquifers over time. And the fact that we already have two of our biggest supply wells in the seacoast area shut down from contamination. These are major issues. We haven't tied it specifically, the cancer cases, to a specific cause, but we've just found out, um, at least through my work at the State House, that New Hampshire has the highest rate of breast cancer, the highest rate of bladder cancer, and now the highest rate of pediatric cancers in New Hampshire out of the whole country. So clearly there are some environmental issues uh, going on that are contributing to these very elevated levels of cancers. And I contend there's also elevated pancreatic cancers in the same area, which I still haven't gotten a, a final answer on. And we also have about three times the expected rate of brain and central nervous cancers in our same children in the same area. So when you don't address these issues of contamination uh, of drinking water and you let them go, uh, this is what happens. So where was the EPA during all of this? What was the EPA doing throughout all of these crises? Well, it's interesting because when we, um, when I got involved in this issue, uh, they just were trying to keep the cover on it. And I started really delving into what was going on. And I, you know, because of my background as an environmental scientist, I understood the basic um, things that I needed to understand about where the groundwater was flowing from this landfill, which basically sits on the highest hill in the whole seacoast. And so when you're on a hill, everything flows down away from that hill in all directions. And that was one of the first things I started talking about. And the EPA kept trying to act as though I was crazy, <laughs> basically. Um, I don't really understand where the regulators were 
um, why they were trying so hard to not let this thing erupt in the public. EPA and the regulators here in the state of New Hampshire really did their best to try to keep it all under wraps. And come to find out through a lot of my own um, specific investigations, I filed a right to know request. I found out that the EPA uh, went back on their initial decision for this Superfund site, um, which required the responsible parties to put in a pump and treat system, which would have collected the groundwater and not allowed it to flow offsite and contaminate all these towns. They, um, through lobbying, through the responsible parties, lobbied really hard through our congressional delegates and got the EPA to go back on their decision. And the Department of Defense had allocated $5.25 million to the responsible parties back in the 1990 timeframe with the understanding that this remedial system would have been put in. And the responsible parties took that money to settle a frivolous lawsuit instead. And so then they went to lobby to get the remedial system the EPA to to go back on their decision, and they were successful. So this is basically a crime that the public is now paying for in terms of of uh, chronic disease and and cancer. Um, and, and I don't know if that's part of the reason why they were trying to keep a lid on it so much because people would find out they were involved in reversing that decision. That's probably what it is. Um, so one of the things that I did in uh, as soon as I came out of school, I actually went to do research in North Dakota um, in the Bakken. So it was the new oil boom that was happening. It was the new Wild West. And I can attest to the fact that when I was there, the EPA did turn a blind eye to a lot of the violations. Um, one of the reasons why... Uh, a lot of these companies were also able to cover up their mistakes or violations. It's because they were giving um, warning that they were going to be under inspection. So they had time to to really gloss over everything before the EPA inspector came by uh, or the OSHA inspectors came by. Uh, so a lot of these violations really were just pushed under the, the carpet and, and forgotten about. And of course, nothing actually ever happens until there is an uprise or an outcry from the people. And and that's one of the things that we really have to emphasize here is that, you know, the leaders from our movement, they're not coming from the top. They're coming from the bottom. They are the people who are struggling right now. They're the people who are being affected by these huge corporations, their lack of, of responsibility and accountability and the impacts to our health and our environment. So you've all talked a lot about how money and politics really drives and worsens this crisis. Usually we think about this corrupting influence in terms of campaign contributions, but it goes even deeper than that. Yeah, Nestle is spending nearly $3 million in lobbying for the current campaign cycle alone, but the Center for Responsive Politics also notes that over half of the current lobbyists for Nestle have previously held government jobs. How does this revolving door exacerbate this system? I, you know, this is not just, you know, a factor in the environmental areas. We know that people leave, um, you know, their jobs in various industry and go to work for EPA. We know that 700 EPA people minimum have left their jobs since the 2016 November election. It's not uh, an issue only with this environmental area. We know it's an issue with regard to the FDA. We know that it's an issue like companies like Monsanto like to put people into government positions that have to deal with regulation of their seed stocks and things. So it's a broad-based issue, revolving door issue. I, I do a talk on it, actually, and I have a few slides that really show how much 
it's astounding when you really look at how much uh, the revolving door really impacts our ability to pass legislation that really affects public health and is in the public interest. And all the more reason why we need to get the money out of politics. So what actions have you all taken and what actions do you all want to take in the future to fight this crisis and to ensure that every American has a right and has access to the clean water they deserve. So just kind of going back to what Mindy was saying in the last point, when we look at what happened here in Michigan with with Nestle getting pretty much unlimited amount of water uh, for a $200 a year permit, when the permitting went through the regular channels and the public had an opportunity to comment, there were about 82,000 comments submitted from the public in the state and only 75 of those comments were in favor of granting that permit. This to me is a really clear and obvious uh, reflection that democracy is being completely perverted by this corporate control and by the ability of people like Nestle and people going back and forth between the corporations and the government regulatory agencies to just ignore the public. That's what we have to fight against is we need to find a way to make sure that we can stop this going back and forth. And it's one of the things that we tried to put into the Democratic platform when I was there as a representative for Senator Sanders is that you wouldn't be able to go back and forth if you'd been uh, if you'd been in government for within the last five years, you wouldn't be able to work in one of the agencies that are one of the industries that you were supposed to have been regulating. You know, what I would think that we really need to do is revamp the entire process by which chemicals are approved for use here in the United States. We should mimic more the process that's used in Europe. Basically what happened with these compounds, these PFAS compounds, these things that are components of Teflon and Gore-Tex that are in our drinking water system here in the, in the seacoast area of New Hampshire and at 600 plus bases, military bases across the United States, including Michigan. David, you probably know a little bit about that. But there are, you know, these chemicals were approved for use basically through loopholes where um, thousands of these chemicals were passed through an approval process without really understanding whether or not they would affect public health and how difficult they would be to get out of the environment once they were released. So we allowed the industry to basically get these chemicals through without any proof of, of, of safety or any proof of the ability to get them out of the uh, environment. And that's, you know, the FDA even has a process by which we have to get chemicals approved for use in drugs. Um, and it's insane that with the EPA, uh, with the approval process for chemicals on the market, that there isn't a similar sort of um, uh, ability to test these things before they actually come in the market. And that's one of the things I think that is really heavily influenced by the industry. You know, we know that companies, big pharma companies influence it quite a bit in the FDA as well. So it's not entirely ironclad, but we know that they run rampant over the uh, approval process for chemicals here in the United States. I had pesticide bills here in the state of New Hampshire that I, were I was trying to get um, them to be able to limit the use of pesticide spraying on our uh, nursery schools and, and 
elementary schools. And you would not believe the lobbyist fight from that. In just our little state of New Hampshire here, they came in from all over the country and talked about this crazy stuff like if you don't spray pesticides on school playgrounds, kids will trip on dandelions and blades of grass. And I have the proof of the stuff that they said um, in writing that they gave out. I mean, these are the people from Monsanto. These are the people from their uh, Bayer and their arms of industry uh, lobbyists that really influence our ability to get good policy passed. So, you know, I think it's important to look at how do we approve these chemicals and make sure we're, we're doing what's right for the people, not for industry. Yeah. And, and I'll jump in um, with just one last point. You know, Nestle, Coca-Cola and other giants, they are legal cartels who see the blue gold at the end, you know, just shimmering. And we are entering a period of water scarcity. Uh, where this is going to become a commodity of the future. So, of course, they're looking at the profits that they can make. Who is going to hold on to something that is so scarce? I mean, we're talking about um, water resources not meeting supply and demand in the next 15 years. And that's a scary thought because these corporations will not stop. They, They want to own every single drop of fresh water. And it's going to be up to us to stop them from getting there. So what can we do? You know, a few things that we can do is, number one, lobby ourselves. We can be citizen lobbyists. We can attend these town halls. We can demand that our city does not sign a contract um, with corporations like Nestle, who are known for abusing and extracting and deviating um, water resources uh, to other places. Uh, what else can we do? We can make sure that these permits are actual up to standard, up to date. Uh, the fact that they can extract millions and millions and millions of water on a single permit use. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And of course, um, tighten up our belt. You know, we have to go out there and, and do inspections, unannounced inspections. We have to do thorough investigations and, and ensure the public trust again, because I think that's one of the things that's failing us all right now is how much we do not trust our government to do right by us. And I don't care what anybody says. You know, they're always saying things like, oh, well, you want the government to do this and that for you. Yeah, of course I do. They're taking my tax money. I want them to work for me, for my best interest. And unfortunately, my tax dollars don't match up to hundreds of thousands of dollars coming in from special interests. But we can stop it by, number one, overturning Citizens United. Number two, preventing this revolving door, extending the years between the time that they leave office and the time that they can go work for a lobbying firm. Those are all things that we can do and we can lobby. And we got to get the right people elected who are going to fight for us and who are going to put those bills on the floor and are going to fight for them tooth and nail. So how can folks fight for all of you? Where can they find you online and how can they get involved? Well, for me, um, they can go to my website at Mindy, M-I-N-D-I, for F-O-R, congress.com. And there are ways that you can get involved in the campaign. You know, you don't have to live in New Hampshire necessarily to help us out. If you want to help us get elected, all of us, you can volunteer to phone bank. You can volunteer to send out letters to potential supporters and try to gain some interest that way. But the most important thing is we're not taking money from these special interest corporations or lobbyists. So they're playing a big part in trying to get some of our counterparts elected by funneling tons of money into their campaigns. Like here in New Hampshire, there's one particular 
two people in particular that are taking a ton of corporate and PAC money. They have so much money in their coffers. And here we are, you know, trying to struggle by with individual donations from people uh, like you. So that would be so very helpful if you can just donate a little bit, 25 bucks, 10 bucks, five bucks, whatever you can to each of our campaigns. Um, going to my website, you'll see a big red donate button. And that would be so very helpful. And spreading the word on social media is also really helpful. Go to our social media, Facebook and Twitter sites, and just spread the word to all your friends. Yeah, uh, this is David uh, in Michigan. One of the things that we are promoting is there's a anti-gerrymandering constitutional amendment that's on the ballot for people. And it crosses over to the issues we're talking about because the group that has put 50% of the money against that anti-gerrymandering petition is Enbridge which is the same oil company that's responsible for one of the largest oil spills in the country that happened here in the Kalamazoo River. And they're also the same oil company that's got the uh, Line 5, which is a pipeline that runs under the Straits of Mackinac, which could destroy miles, hundreds of miles of our shoreline when it breaks. And that's who's fighting against this. So those are the people who are trying to destroy our democracy. Yeah. And I will just come in uh, last because I actually just didn't get through my primary. But what I'm doing, it's what I'm going to ask you to join me in, is supporting brand new Congress candidates. These people are not bought and sold. You know, their vote will be for you on your behalf. So what you can do is always go to brandnewcongress.com, check out the candidates. You can go to my Facebook page or my uh, webpage where I will be posting events uh, where we and my team, um, and I call everybody my team, but we are going everywhere to try to help these candidates uh, canvas. We're gonna be hosting phone banks for them. Um, these are our candidates that are working their butts off. I mean, this they're pouring their heart and soul into this. And believe me, I know this because we were canvassing in 100 plus degree weather uh, to try to affect change locally. Um, in my district, we are fortunate enough that we have Lake Tahoe and Yosemite and Kings Canyon National Park. The most unfortunate thing is that we currently have a representative who is a climate science denier who has brought up ideas of drilling in our backyard in Yosemite. So we have a lot to fight for. And, uh, you know, we're going up against big, big money, millions of dollar, Coke industry funded candidates. So we need your support um, to phone bank, uh, resharing, even on social media, getting everybody's name out there is so important right now because we need people to know that these candidates do exist. That is the only way to end voter apathy is by giving people a candidate to vote for. Rosa, thank you for covering precisely what I wanted to cover. And thank you all again for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for running. Thank you for being part of this movement. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Brandon Congress. It's, it's amazing. It's great to have the support from an organization like you. It's great that you're on our slate and we're able to support you. We are so proud to have such an incredible slate of progressive candidates who reject corporate money, who stick to their principles, and who are dedicated not just to winning elections, but to building a movement to return politics to the people. Before we wrap up, I'm going to remind folks about how they can get involved. Rosa covered much of this, so I'll keep it quick. Mindy's primary is on September 11th. You can sign up directly to volunteer for Mindy's campaign at mindyforcongress.com volunteer. To join the movement to elect a people-powered brand new Congress, head over to brandnewcongress.org join. If you can, please make a donation as well. We truly are a people-powered organization. We're a team of volunteers, very modest budget. Over 80% of our contributions 
individual donations from working class Americans are $20 or less. Half are $10 or less. Every dollar truly does make a difference. Every volunteer contributes to the movement. You can sign up to volunteer at brandnewcongress.org slash volunteer. I can promise you that it's a lot of fun. You'll be joining a really enthusiastic team of dedicated working people who are in this for all the right reasons. And of course, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Brand New Congress, on Twitter at Brand New 535, that's 535, and subscribe to the Brand New Podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode. Music